Welcome to Cyberbytes the Podcast. I'm your host, Joseph Cooper, co-founder of Espon Search. Today's guest, we have Rahul Power, founder and CEO of Redshift, a venture capital-backed cognitive cybersecurity platform. A technologist and entrepreneur who loves building software and using technology to solve problems, he lifts the lid on some of the newest tech and generative AI. How are you, man? Yeah, good, good. How are you, Joseph? Yeah, I'm good, thank you, mate. I'm good. So you uh, in London at the moment? I am enjoying the sunny weather. Nice. Yeah, yeah, you're my first London guest, actually. So uh, privilege is, is mine, I guess. Um, yeah, I'm down in Bournemouth. So uh, yeah, we've also got the good weather, fortunately. But um, we'll see how long it lasts. <laughs> how you been? What have you been up to? Yeah, busy building software, solving problems, as I guess a lot of your guests are. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, let's dive straight in, brother. Really keen to, with all my guests, I go right back to where it all began and how you got into the industry, and we could talk about how you got to, to founding Redshift. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, I'm a technologist. I've been excited about using technology to solve problems, um, and uh, my specialty is such an indexing of unstructured data. So I started way back when, which was like 23 years ago, just reminiscing about this at uh, as part of the founding. Uh, founding team at Shazam, one of the early engineers there were basically we were building these big search clusters for music before the cloud was a thing, which was a lot of fun. And then uh, over the years, I ended up drifting into enterprise software. My previous business got acquired by uh, Thomson Reuters Corporation, one mm-hmm. of the world's large data conglomerates. Uh, and we used, you know, a lot of early technology uh, that was available at the time, you know, a bunch of NLP, natural language understanding and the like to help figure out what content uh, enterprise customers would, would find relevant or they would engage with. And uh, so that was my drift into enterprise software and then found Redshift um, a number of years ago to basically bring a lot of those technology solutions to the mass market and make it uh, yeah. easy and possible for organizations to you know, protect their ever attacking, ever expanding attack surface from the latest yeah. threats. Amazing. How did the Thomson Reuters acquisition come about? Uh, the TR acquisition was a while ago. I think we were, mm-hmm. uh, it was a 2012, if I remember correctly. And, and we were just, you know, in the middle of, of looking at mobile and mobile platforms specifically to say how do we build out the technology suites for this new device, this new form factor. And, uh, you know, Thomson Reuters had a bunch of really smart people who, who were pondering the same question. Um, and we were working in sort of similar similar arenas. Um, and, uh, yeah, they, they they thought we could be a really you know, important accelerator for effectively the platforms that they were trying to address that were not desktop browsers, you know, mobile. We always did a lot of automotive uh, yeah. wearable. Uh, those sorts of things that required a completely different way about thinking about the problem. You know, they were very sort of design-led. There was a question of how do you find the most relevant and appropriate content for users who might be time poor or might be distracted, you know, surface yes. at on the device. So, uh, yeah, it was a great ride. Built some, built some amazing technology, worked with some yeah. great people. How long did you stay there for after the acquisition? About three years. Is it three years? Yeah, yeah. And then Red Sith came off the back of that, you say? Yeah, yeah, sure. We wanted to, you know, take some of these really bespoke capabilities that we were building for the enterprise and make them sort of accessible for a much wider audience. And I think cybersecurity was a very natural fit because obviously we're doing quite a lot with um deep technology that was around understanding unstructured data like news articles and feeds. And we realized that a lot of the applications for those were going to be inside cybersecurity as 
fraudsters sort of move from targeting the machines to targeting the people, as we've sort of seen over the last few years. You know, a lot of the attacks really hit at hit at the people who are behind the screen, who are looking at phishing messages and BEC and you know, lookalike websites and the like and getting confused and tricked into doing things that they shouldn't be doing. So we try and use the technology that we've built at scale to try and protect uh, our customers' customers from those sorts of attacks. Well, you said we. Who did you found with somebody? Or was it a couple of founders? How many of you? Yeah, there are two of us. Uh, my uh, co-founder and CTO, Randall, we've been working together across multiple businesses for a number of years at this point in time. So, you know, I think we've got a uh, we've got a good rhythm going about you know how we how we divide and conquer. Yeah, nice. I guess that helps that you you knew each other before as well, and you've worked together in the past. Yeah, I think it's been fifteen years at this point in time across three businesses. So yeah, nice. Should have uh yeah, that's uh a good good stretch, mate. It's like a marriage, I guess. Yeah, um, I see. I see, see more of him than my wife sometimes. Yeah, yeah, I can bet. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Um, so great. So you know, just come. Uh, sorry, red Sips come about. With the, the the problems that you you're solving, like how how far along are we? So what what solutions have we got in place at the moment? What what are you offering there down there at the minute? Yeah, we got a portfolio of products. I think uh, what's interesting about our approach is that we knew early on that you know in cybersecurity a lot of the challenges change over time. Yeah. So what we built, and you know people often ask what Redshift is itself, and Redshift is really a streaming data platform that we built to take all of this messy unstructured data where it comes from and and process it using really advanced technology so we can spit back out you know really clear insights and really clear actions to the users of our products so we have products that cover uh business email compromise scenarios so we help organizations prevent themselves from being trivially impersonated over email and that's obviously a big issue for a lot of people today um we help organizations manage all of their interfacing assets and harden them uh, against the kinds of attacks that, that people are launching against these things that are sitting out on the internet. Uh, we help organizations find, you know, lookalike websites and custom domains that take them down using effectively machine vision and AI to kind of understand what's going on uh, out there. So we have a, a whole portfolio of interconnected solutions that really exist to you know, very easily um, help our customers say, well, what's out there that belongs to me? How well configured is it and how ready is that for the public internet for both the threats of today and the threats of tomorrow? And what else is going on out there that I don't know about that I really don't 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 like and want taken down because it's you know effectively impacting uh, the security of my brand and on the internet at large. Mm. Which thing is the biggest uh, attack vector? Well, email is still, you know, very, very yeah. um very relevant. I think all of it, I don't think we've ever spoken to anyone who doesn't have a BEC problem in one way yeah. or one way or the other. Um, and also, I think because we're looking at, you know, attacks that are really targeting the people, uh, a lot of these attacks are now being engineered to be quite invisible to a lot of the machine-based solutions that are out there. You know, machines are looking at blacklists, they're looking at URLs that should not be used, et cetera, et cetera. Um, a lot of the attacks now just don't have those characteristics in there. They're, they're really trying to, you know, get the user to trust in some meaningful way uh, the counterparty who's actually impersonating someone else. And so, you know, they're fileless, they don't malware hashes to go out and search, and they may not never have appeared on a blacklist or not yet. So so those sorts of things basically require the machines to to you know protect against these type of attacks by 
looking at those messages, looking at those domains the way a human being might, or uh, you know, making sure that those those emails can't go out in the first place. So we've seen that become a become a real issue. And then of course there's the there's the ever real threat of what uh, the next generation of AI brings and you know how scalable and customizable these attacks become. Yeah, absolutely. Am I right in saying that you was a beta uh, customer on chat chat GPT? Is that right? Well, not of chat GPT per se. Um, you know, if you uh, obviously that's blown up, and uh, I guess after Threads is now the second most popular possible <laughs> service ever. But uh, you know, early on, um, you know, I've uh, been working in this space for a really long time, so I had some early access. I had early access to uh, the precursor model. Uh, Foundation model called GPT three, um, GPT three, which was I think released in twenty twenty. Uh, it uh, it was one of the few pieces of technology that I ever touched that just completely blew my mind. Um, the first time I started playing with it, uh, uh, and the second thing that blew my mind is when OpenAI released ChatGPT to the public because I thought they'd be very sort of careful and measured about unleashing this thing on on to the public at wild, but. You know, uh, good on them, right? I think they've uh, created a lot of uh, they've created a lot of interest. Uh, they've tried to put some decent guardrails in place. I mean, I think there's still a lot of work to do, but I think everyone's kind of woken up to what the uh, threat and opportunity of this suite of technology is today. I think mm -hmm. back when I got my GPD three key and I played in the playground, I became incredibly evangelical. Like it was twenty twenty. I remember talking to a bunch of people and like, I don't know what you're talking about. It's like, yeah, okay, fine. It's going to be a while before this hits the mainstream. I didn't expect like, you know, two short years later for everyone to be using this thing. Yeah, it's insane. So there's obviously a lot of benefits of it. I completely get it. And particularly with ChatGPT being beneficial. What about like from a, a security perspective, what sort of risks and yeah, talk to us about the risk aspects of it. Like what do you think from a risk perspective? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, it's it's worth noting that it's still a relatively new and I would argue relatively poorly understood technology by by almost everyone. I think you know we're still debating whether large language models are really just a very complicated completion machine or whether they actually have some level of intelligence or understanding. Um, I think over the last couple of years, I've drifted more towards towards the latter than the former because the new models just seem to be able to understand things about the world that is that is a little bit unexpected. I think they're doing more than just sort of repetition on what the training data is. Um, but, you know, net on net, they're very capable and they, I uh, think, uh, one of the one of the pieces of research I read, you know, talked about them, thinking about them as sort of commoditizing the marginal cost of intelligence in some way. And um, you can see that these models are very, easy to get access to, relatively cheap to run, even the open source models that are, you know, asymptotically as good as, as some of the most sophisticated closed source models. Um, so they can obviously be used for a lot of things, some of which are, um, you know, ethically questionable, some of which are, you know, downright dangerous. And I think the advantage of the closed source models is that, you know, people are trying to rein them in and make them make them safer because safety is, is, a, is a big concern and obviously an area where uh, people are trying to trying to restrict the kind of access and the kind of questions and the interactions that they will that, that they will engage with. But the reality is, the open source models that are available today are getting almost as good, and some of them are available without any guardrails. So you know, no doubt, over the next couple of years, that's just going to become a capability that you know anyone has access to. And so you can expect that um, you know there's a lot of concern out there today, as rightfully so, I would argue around what these generative AI models can do for the weaponization of information, which is, you know, as we know, one of the 
one of the big challenges facing us yeah. as a technological society today. today. And uh, everyone was suggesting this is just going to accelerate that problem. Um, I, however, consider myself an optimistic technologist. I, I like to think that you know technology can be part of the solution instead of just being part of the problem. Um, and you know we've been very interested in the idea of using these large language models you know, effectively to automate things that are otherwise very difficult to automate safely mm -hmm. because they require a certain level of understanding or a certain level of intelligence or inherently very sort of judgment-based problems. Can we use these, you know, brains in a box essentially to do things that are otherwise very difficult to do at kind of line speed or, or at scale um, in a way that allows the good guys to actually leverage some of this capability as part of their defense architecture. It's not just about, you know, bad guys using generative AI to generate, you know, phishing emails and glide sites and all this other good stuff, but it's also bad stuff, actually. But also about, mm -hmm. you know, using that technology as part of the defense when you're trying to defend against these very human-targeted attacks uh, in a way that, you know, the workforce is just not set up to deal with today. Yeah, what, what can companies do to protect themselves, particularly with the adoption of ChatGPT, like with employees just sort of going on their willy-nilly source code. I think it's <laughs> Samsung, some guy from Samsung put some source code in. And yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's probably going to be more stories that just haven't come out yet. But what can companies yeah, do? It's interesting to observe. I think that the problem is the utility of these services is so high that, uh, you know, uh, obviously a lot of professionals, knowledge workers, which, you know, frankly, a lot of us are right in the Western world, uh, are, are highly incentivized to try and use them to uh, as a source of leverage, which, you know, I think is you know, the, the promise of the technology. Uh, I think for organizations, I've sort of seen, I've sort of seen three responses, you know, one response is it doesn't exist. I'm going to just wait and see. And I don't think that's a particularly viable strategy today, because, you know, we have a lot of legislation that's bubbling up. And, you know, it's not quite law yet. But inevitably there's a lot of work that's going on around um you know what the right use of this type of technology is and what is legal and what is not depending on the jurisdiction that you're in so i think organizations that pretend it doesn't exist are exposing them to quite a lot of risk um the, the second approach is just to sort of do a blanket you're not allowed to use any of these technologies because we don't know what the legal certainty is um i think you know that's for a risk of us organization that that might be the right thing to do but these tools are incredibly useful and powerful and, uh, you know, a straight up blanket across it, I think has two negative effects. One is you don't get that leverage across your organization. And I think the second thing is you don't start to understand them. Mm -hmm. And I think that is possibly a, a bigger issue for organizations that are trying to sort of modernize and digitize and embrace these, embrace the possibility of what technology can offer. And this is going to be a very powerful part of the toolkit going forward. If no one in your organization knows what it's good for and knows how to use it, that, that's a competitive disadvantage from my perspective. Um, and then there's a third option, which is to take more of a risk-adjusted adjust, view on this, to say, okay, there are certain things that you know just you should not be doing because there's a, there's very poor legal certainty around that. It's There's a lot of risk associated with it. Um, and maybe the, maybe the uh, marginal utility is low. Um, so policy, I think, is a good place to start. I mean, I know we're talking to a lot of leaders in the space who you know, sort of articulate a generally... Uh, non-specific concern about the technology, but if you actually say, what are the sort of things that you've actually done? Um, usually it's a, well, talked about it a lot. Um, so, you know, we've launched obviously AI features in our product, but before we did any of that, we really sat down and put a policy together to say, where do we think we can safely use this? Uh, where we can harness the utility without creating undue risk. I think that very few organizations have really 
thought about it in that way just yet. And if you haven't thought about it, then you know it's not surprising that your employees will run off and do whatever they think they need to or want to do at any point in time. Um, so I think it's you know it's uh, it, from my perspective, there's no doubt we're living through another industrial revolution right now. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, as a technologist, it's great to be like looking at it while it unfolds because you you blow your mind every day while you while you think about it and, and look at what's happening. Um, and there's obviously going to be winners and losers in that. And I think I'm worried about the societal broader societal impact of some of this automation. But as business owners, I think there's definitely um, an obligation, I think, to, to recognize it for what it is and then figure out which bits you want to leverage today and which bits you're uncomfortable about and where your own sort of ethical line, as it were, mm-hmm. stands. Um, so I think, you know, more businesses should really embrace that and try and get smart about the stuff while it's happening. Yeah, yeah. Where, where do we go from here? Like, where, where 10 years' time so mind-boggling to think in 10 years time where it might be but what, what do you expect and how do you think the sort of the, the landscape is going to have evolved by then Ooh, i don't know if you should be raising 10 years and this at this point in time given where we stand right now yeah. it's pretty tricky it's a pretty tricky task uh, i i don't think i want to stick my neck out quite that far um but you know i think i think we'll definitely look back at this time uh in 10 years and uh, you know, consider it as uh, as a very transformative time and the role that technology played in in in, in the human journey. And I think, uh, I mean, maybe that sounds sounds a little bit overblown, but I, I truly believe that because if I think about the last you know thirty years I've been working with technology, there was obviously the internet and that made a that made a big difference to to the shape and 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 future of humanity when that that became a sort of capability and then got adopted at a mainstream scale. And it's interesting how quickly the magic of having, you know, every computer connected always on at any point in time became, you know, completely commoditized and expected by by all the people who use that technology. I mean, you can't imagine, you know, sort of not being able to Google something and get a result, right? You know, whatever, yeah. 20 years ago. And then I watched the mobile phone revolution, you know, from the, the, the entire idea that mobile is going to become more than just a device where you get ringtones and text messages and talk to people and it became a platform to bring that internet with you wherever you happen to be. I don't think anyone alive today could imagine a life prior to having an always-on, always-connected device that had all these apps and data. And I think when we look forward to 10 years from now, I think we'll look at this as I can't imagine that there was you know a time when we didn't have AI yeah. that's actually like conversational and a, and a real sort of knowledge partner, not integrated into every aspect of our life. So, you know, I think we're watching that happen now, which is why there's a lot of, well, I don't know what this is about. Is it real? Is it is it really going to you know, deliver on the promise? Where are we on the hype cycle? Uh, I think a lot of those things will get flushed out very, very quickly. Um, there was a comment made a long time ago, which I really believe in, which is that technologists like me kind of believe that the technology will be very, very quickly adopted. And we're usually wrong about that. But what we're also wrong about is the scale of the impact when it is adopted, mm. uh, because we usually underestimate that. So, you know, I think we're both over-optimistic about the speed and, and, and not as ambitious about the scale of impact. And I think that will probably be true for what we're facing right now. Crazy. What about, um, you mentioned Google earlier, and I know when we've spoken in the past, you mentioned Google Voice, and it just reminded me, because I was on the phone to the bank, and you have to say my voice is my sort of password, or along those lines. What about that case study with Google being able to ultimately clone your voice? Like, is that, are we there yet? Or is that going to be something mm-hmm. that's uh, 
Well, I mean, at this, uh, I think there's a specific Google paper that we were talking when we were chatting before. But yeah, I mean, what's what's interesting about that is is not just that specific, um, I think, paper. What's interesting about that is the rate of change. Um, I mean, if you follow this stuff very closely, uh, what's really interesting right now is how bewilderingly fast everything is going. Because, you know, there's, uh, as, as a technologist, you kind of pride yourself on being on top of things. And you say, okay, you know, I've, I've read that paper, I've checked out that repository, I kind of know what's happening, I know what's coming. Uh, but things are now happening so quickly that even if you try and stay on top of this stuff, it actually becomes extremely difficult. Uh, and that pace is kind of bewildering. Um, and it's a feeling like it's getting faster, which in itself is is sort of bewildering. So I think it's um, I think it's a really exciting time to be looking at all of this. I think it's a time where the possibilities are kind of expanding almost exponentially on a weekly basis. Uh, and so that's why I think when you think about you know ten years from now, when you think about where the technology is going to be, what the adoption rate is going to look like, what the second order effects of these uh, of the adoption is going to look like, and frankly, what society is going to feel like as a result of all of these changes, along with you know whatever the regulators decide to do and whatever becomes common practice, I think it's very hard to piece that puzzle together and, and look out there. But we know it's going to be different. Mm -hmm. That much I'm I'm virtually certain of. I, I think it's quite difficult to though to frame exactly how different it's going to be. What's next? What's next for Redshift? Well, I mean, um, you know, we're operating at the intersection of this in net scale data with these technologies. And I think that has been something that hasn't really been um fully realized or, or possible below before. Um, we're excited about the opportunity to try and, you know, deliver on our promise. And our original promise was democratizing the technologies essential for cybersecurity. And one of the big challenges over there is you can make great software, but uh, the software still needs, you know, a lot of people to, to understand and operate it and build relievers and understand the alerts and so on and so forth. Um, and that's a big problem in an industry that has, you know, just doesn't have enough people. I think the last piece of research I saw that there are 3.5 million missing uh, professionals globally in this industry. And that's going to be a hard problem to solve. So we're excited about the fact that maybe technology can actually add some leverage now that hasn't been possible before. If we can take some of these, you know, tedious tasks or some of these difficult to automate tasks and make them, uh, you know, simpler, more automatic, more continuous uh, that's an that's an exciting possibility for you know us as a business and the and the industry as a whole. I mean, obviously, a lot of people looking at the space and looking at well, what can we do with this new toolkit that we've been handed? Uh, and we've launched some you know GPT real power features that are really powerful and really cool and automates some really difficult tasks. And I think it's just the start. I'm Rahul. Rahul, I wish you all the best of success, my brother, and uh, I'll see you when I'm next in London. <laughs>